the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he says, God has made me forget. Now, what does the text say? God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. Forgetfulness is a good medicine when all your enemies are nightmares, right? That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko, and this is Reaching Your Heart. Today, we bring you the first portion of a message Pastor Mike calls Joseph's Brothers. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Don't forget the worship service is held every Saturday at 11 o'clock, and you are always welcome. The broadcast is also streamed live at reachinghearts.org slash video. We'll have details on that and more as we continue with today's broadcast. Here is Pastor Michael Oxentango. No story in the Bible turns the parable of the prodigal son on its head better than the story of Joseph's brothers. In many ways, it's the antithesis of the story of the prodigal son. In the parable, the prodigal son's loyal brother stayed at home while he, the prodigal son, willingly left home for a far-off country to get in trouble. In the Genesis account of Joseph and his brothers, the unloyal and deceitful brothers stayed at home, and Joseph, the good and loyal son, was sent unwillingly into a far-off country. In the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal wastes his manhood and wealth in that far-off country and sinks into immorality. In the Genesis account, Judah, as the son who stayed at home, seeks out a prostitute while Joseph finds his real manhood in moral purity in Egypt. And in time, becomes wealthy in that far-off country. He doesn't fall into a state of poverty. He becomes wealthy, prospers in that far-off country, and he refuses the dissipation, the drunkenness, and the immorality with Potiphar's wife. In the parable, the prodigal son comes to his senses in that far-off country as he decides that he will come home to his father. In the Genesis story, Joseph uses his wisdom to help that far-off country prosper, and then he forgets where he came from as he makes no effort to go home to see his father or his brothers. In the parable, the prodigal son and the son who stayed at home show no signs of reconciling after the son returns. And in the Genesis account, Joseph will rise above the wrongs committed against him so as to forgive his brothers and bring healing to his family. So in a real sense, the story of Joseph and his brothers is the opposite of the story of the prodigal son. When we study the life of Joseph, we cannot help but feel that Joseph suffered so much at the hands of unjust people. There is something in all of us that would like for the story to end with Joseph getting even with his brothers. Don't you feel that when you go through the story of Joseph? Can't he just get even a little bit? Can't he get a little measure of justice out of them? Can't he just, you know, hang them up a little bit for all the pain they've done to him? Have you ever felt like that when you read Joseph's story? Anybody here? Boy, am I the only one who seeks a little justice in this place? That's how I feel when I interact with that story. Couldn't he just get even a little bit? For most of us, Justice is just another name for revenge. 
that looks good if our enemies somehow get strung out and we get something that makes us feel like we got even. When you wield the scepter as Joseph did, sooner or later you have to use the power of that scepter to enforce justice in the land. Every good monarch learns to execute justice. We use that term, the executive judgment, even in the Bible. And no doubt Joseph was in power long enough to execute evil men who threatened the kingdom. I mean, he was second to Pharaoh. If someone got out of line, someone was threatening the kingdom or Pharaoh, he no doubt took them out. Joseph had lived for many years in the very prison where they were executed. It was the slaughterhouse prison. It was Pharaoh's prison. So yes, he was directly associated with kingly justice. In time, Joseph most likely ordered executions himself, as I have said. Now think about it. At the cross, we see justice and mercy kissing in an unusual kind of way where every man does not die for his own sins. You read the Torah, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the heart of the law of Moses is every man will die for his own sin. And yet in the new covenant, we hear in the book of Hebrews, where Christ died for every man, it turns the law of Moses on its head in the new covenant. At the cross, we see an unusual kind of justice. We learn to our surprise that God's primary concern is not righting wrongs, but rather righting wrong lives and pouring love and forgiveness into the lives of those who wrong others. We see an upside-down kind of justice where mercy wins in the end. God's justice does not get even at the cross. God's justice gets it right at the cross. There's a big difference between justice and being just. Now pause with me here. A big difference. In the end, only a just and righteous people can discern the real thing from revenge because when you really have justice in your life, you have mercy for others in your life. Thus only forgiven people who forgive can live in the presence of a just and holy God forever because in the end, God's justice is the better side of God's mercy as demonstrated to be the right side of God at the cross of Christ. So Joseph was thrown in the pit at Dothan, but he was pulled out of that pit to rise to power in Egypt. His brothers walked away from the pit and sold their brother Joseph to die in that far-off land of Egypt as a slave. Joseph was thrown into the pit, but now here's the point, but his brothers chose the pit. They couldn't let go of the pit for the rest of his life. And long after Joseph made his journey from the pit to power, they lived with the specter of that pit of Dothan every day for the rest of their lives. It was the shekel around their feet. It was the chain and ball that they carried through life. They had left their brother in the pit. And their pit was their pain and their guilt. And it was far worse than Joseph's pit and memory of it. What the brothers had to endure was more painful than what Joseph had to endure. That is the problem of injustice when it's never made right in the mind and the life. It pulls you down into the pit of your own making. You see, the pit you fall into is your own pit often. Remember that the name Dothan implies the divine decree. It's the word dot. It comes from the Hebrew Aramaic word dot, which means law or decree. The pit was God's decree in some way. God's power and bad choices combined in that tragedy of Joseph's life And they were in play in the movement from the pit of Dothan to the power of Egypt. Somehow, God was in the mix making a difference even though people were making bad choices. Have you ever had a bad choice in your life that you thought would sink your ship? 
You ever had a bad choice? You said, well, I blew it. I can never recover from that. Anybody ever had a choice like that? Okay. Well, guess what? God is in the pit of your bad choice, directing your life to a positive outcome because God cares about you and others. God is not in the business of dragging you down forever because you failed him. Do you hear what I'm saying? We worship a God of grace. We worship a God of salvation who comes to us, who saves us in spite of us if we will exercise that mustard seed of saving faith in Christ. God's power and bad choices combine to create a good outcome because God overrules the evil in our life if God is in our life. Every day that passed, Joseph's brothers sank a little deeper into the pit of Doth and there was no one to pull them out of their self-pity, pit, and guilt. No one that could do that. This is the context for the painful time that passed from the pit of Dothan to Joseph's rise to power in Egypt. Take your Bibles. Let's turn to Genesis 41, verse 47. During the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth abundantly. And he, Joseph, gathered up all the food of the seven years when there was plenty in the land of Egypt and stored up food in the cities. He stored up in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. In the Bible, a harvest of grain is often symbolic of a harvest of people. The harvest, the wheat harvest in the book of Revelation, when the angel is told to take the sickle and reap the harvest of the earth, it represents the people who will be saved at the second coming. So it's a good thing to harvest wheat. It means harvesting people. Notice verse 50. Before the year of famine came, Joseph had two sons from Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, that bore to him. So after many years of affliction, from the pit to power, Joseph finally found a home and happiness in Egypt as the Lord of all the land. I mean, his fortunes had totally been reversed. His life had gone from being a failure to being the ultimate success in Egypt. His wife was Asenath. Her name suggests the Hebrew words for thornbush, trouble, or to suffer harm. Now, why would you want to marry someone named Thornbush? You know, Potiphar had a daughter named Thornbush. And by the way, her name is Hebrew. It is not Egyptian. So I had in the world that this lady with a Hebrew name called Thornbush end up in Potiphar's house. And, you know, the rabbis who tinkered a lot with the text, who measured every word, who compared every jot and tittle and numbered the characters of the Hebrew Bible, they thought about that. What is going on here? And many of the ancient Jewish rabbis believed that Asenath was the daughter of Dinah, born because of the rape at the hands of Shechem, and that the brothers had sold her into Egypt too. That's what the Jews believed in mass. If Dinah had a daughter, she would have been about 18 when Joseph rose to power. That would have made Asenath the adopted daughter of Potiphar, who they also believe was Potiphar because it's the same name in Egyptian. Potiphar and Potiphar, there is no difference. It's the same name. And I happen to believe, based on the reading of the Hebrew text, and I've studied comparative etymology, that Potiphar is Potiphar. So these are questions we can never fully answer in this life, and some things are left for us to connect the dots and ponder as we search for the deeper answers in the Scripture And sometimes it's good to compare what the ancient Midrashic rabbis thought because they're struggling with this too. There is something deep going on in this story. Nonetheless, whoever Asenath was with her Hebrew name that means the thorn bush in trouble, she soon brought a whole lot of happiness into Joseph's life. She was anything but a thorn bush. Look at verse 51. 
Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he says, God has made me forget. Now what does the text say? God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. Forgetfulness is a good medicine when all your enemies are nightmares, right? Forgetfulness is a great medicine. If all your memories are nightmares, why not forget them, right? Joseph's confession in verse 51 is an amazing statement. Think about it. Joseph came to the point in his life in Egypt when he chose to forget the whole house of his father Jacob. Remember, his father loved him. His father had given him the coat of many colors. But the pain was so awful, he had learned to forget it all. Pain can do that to you. It can cause you to forget even the good in your life. Joseph joins two concepts into one when he named his son Manasseh. He equated first all my hardship with secondly, number two, all my father's house. All my hardship, all my father's house, God has caused me to forget it all. Now he's overreaching here. His pain has brought him to a point where he wants to leave it all behind. No desire to go back and find daddy. No desire to be reconciled with his brothers. Just let it go. Psychologists call that deep family trauma. When a young person is traumatized, there's family system trauma, it is so easy to forget it. And the effects, though, leave their scars on a person's life into adulthood. Joseph is not fully functional. Joseph, in this sense, is dysfunctional. But Joseph is God's son being developed in that far-off land for great things. And so there's unfinished business in Joseph's life. Psychologists call this a desire to forget when you have deep trauma, disassociative fugue, when you choose to forget the pain in the past because it hurts too much to hang on to. So you kind of live another life in your head. Now look at verse 52. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now the name Ephraim is a dual Hebrew plural noun that comes from the Hebrew word for fruit. Joseph had two sons, and he was doubly fruitful in Egypt. So the plural, the double plural ending of Ephraim, the ayim means two, not many, but two. Two times fruitful. He had two sons, and so he could say, I am doubly fruitful in the land of Egypt. Now don't forget that his brothers were a very large component of his father's house. Joseph gave the full credit for helping him to forget his father's house. He gave it to God. He says, God has helped me to forget my father's house. But this is not, in fact, what God did or what God wanted. It's what Joseph thought God was doing. God himself did not forget Joseph's father's house. God did not forget Jacob and his family in Canaan. And God did not forget Joseph's brothers either. We'll continue with today's Reaching Your Heart and Pastor Michael Oxentenko in just a moment. If you'd like to attend the worship service, I will have details on how you can do that here at the close of our broadcast today, so please stay tuned. You can always attend online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Many archived messages are available there for you, and you can attend the live service in a streaming format at that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Let's continue now with Pastor Michael Oxentenko in today's Reaching Your Heart. The same God who took Joseph from pit to power loved Joseph's brothers just as much as he loved Joseph. So we cannot tell the story of Joseph unless we talk of Joseph's brothers. Look at verse 53. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end. 
It says, all good things do come to an end at time. Have you ever had something good in your life and you just wanted to last forever? No. Well, I'm going to put both hands up. May the good last forever. Okay. Well, but then it came to an end, right? And you wanted to get it back. Oh, if I could just get this back, this good thing, just come back in my life, that'd be great. And it's gone. Well, the seven years that were good were replaced with seven years that were not good. Pharaoh's dream was from God, and this divine dream had suddenly become a nightmare for the whole world because the plentiful years of harvest had resulted in this awful seven years when it started going south in a hurry. Verse 54, and the seven years of famine began to come, and Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. The famine sounds like the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 all over again. Remember, Abraham had gone down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. He had taken his wife, Sarah, his nephew, and the others. They all went down south, and they barely got out of there with their life, and he barely got out of there with his wife. And Sarah was not happy with him because he had lied to Pharaoh to kind of save his own life, and she ended up in Pharaoh's harem. I mean, a famine in Egypt was a bad combination in the previous history of Abraham, and so Jacob must have known this. Joseph must have known this. But here, the famine is dominating the land of Egypt. Look at verse 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, and what he says to you, do. I mean, it's very clear. Joseph is the center of gravity. Joseph is the awesome leader in Egypt. Joseph is the sigma-style leader, not the alpha, not the beta, the sigma-style leader, the lone wolf that has risen to power because of his capabilities, because of his focus. And Joseph, God sent a man. I mean, if you read the story of Joseph, you don't recognize that. God sent a man. Just like God wants to send a man or a woman in this generation. A man or woman who will do the right thing though the heavens fall. A man or woman who will be committed to the word of God no matter what happens. A man or woman who will not do the political calculus to see if something works. A man or woman who will do what God wants no matter what. God sent a man who had prepared Egypt for a harvest of seven years. And through that man, God saved the world. Pharaoh was a wise man. He said to all the people, go to Joseph and obey him. Now verse 56 So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. The Hebrew word translated to buy grain can also be translated to be broken. It's a Hebrew pun. It's a double meaning. Buy grain, be broken. Buy grain, be broken. Broken people from all over the world came to Joseph so they could live by buying grain. That's the wordplay in the ancient Hebrew language. Joseph was the administrative healer for the world in his day. He was a type of the bread of life who is Jesus Christ. Now think about it. You don't get far in life without bread. How many of you had toast this morning for breakfast? Anybody had toast this morning? A few of you did? Well, I mean, there's this big debate. Is whole grain better than you know, refined. The big thing is, how many of you rely on bread? See, we all need bread, okay? You don't get far in life without bread, and you can't attain eternal life without the bread of life. Christ uses it for the metaphor of future existence. Bread and grain matter as Christians. It's a metaphor for feeding on the truth, the word, the living Christ. Joseph's name means he adds or he increases. God uses godly men 
immersed in the word of God to give us the bread of life so we can live. Did you hear what I said? If we try to live spiritually based on our philosophy, if we try to live spiritually based on our good intentions, if we try to live spiritually based on our good efforts, we'll fail. God raises up men and women who are anointed to take the word of God to open its meaning to us so that we can live. We still need Joseph's today who will take the grain and the bread and give it to us so we can live. I don't know about you, but I listen to good preachers on YouTube. I don't listen to myself. I listen to men and women of God who influence me to know the Bible more deeply. So God uses people immersed in his word to change our lives. So don't underestimate the importance of a man or a woman of God who gives you the bread of life. When God chose Joseph, God sent a man to save the world with bread. And I'll also say this. Don't give a man or woman of God trouble in your life if they're sharing the word of God in your life. The book of Hebrews says that we should submit to these kind of leaders. We should submit to them if they are faithful to God's word. But stay away from those peddlers of the word, those philosopher kings who don't feed you anything but their own ideas, who do not take the sacred scripture and disclose it to you. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist church was raised up on the wings of Bible prophecy at the end of the 2300 years of Daniel 8.14 to bring the Bible back to the world. Did you know that? And by bringing the Bible back to the world to bring the living Christ into a compromised Protestantism to a corrupt Christianity to transform the world for the second coming of Christ. Dear heart, we need the grain. We need the bread of God today. We need Joseph's who will bring us back to those founding principles that will take us home to glory. I don't know about you. I don't want to be here for 20, 30 years. I don't want to be camping out on planet Earth. I want to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. Is anybody in that camp with me today? I mean, I'm not in the occupy forever mode. I want my life. I want this church. I want our lives to be so consecrated to the cause of God that we participate in finishing the work of God in our lifetime. Anything less than this is worthless. We are called because God is sending a generation of Adventists, young people and others, to finish the work in our lifetime. Genesis 42 verse 1, when Jacob learned, Joseph's father, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And that's an amazing verse. I like the way Jacob said that. Why do you look at one another? Joseph's bump on the log brothers, who had been rendered weak and powerless by the pit of their pain and the famine of their faithlessness, were just standing there doing nothing as they looked at the prospect of dying from the famine as it overtook the land. So he said, why are you just standing there looking at each other? The Hebrew says literally in verse 1 that Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. I like that part. How does an old man who probably can barely see, who has lost the youthful sight of vigor, how can he see what is in a far-off land? Now, don't forget that Joseph was a prophet of God with some serious issues. Some people say, well, you know, a prophet can't lie. A prophet can't sin in their life. Was Jacob a liar, yes or no? Okay. Did Jacob have moral issues, yes or no? Did Jacob have insecurities in his life? Yes or no? Did Jacob have a lot to grow? Yes or no? Can God work with a person like that and give them the prophetic powers? Absolutely. God doesn't call perfect people. He calls his people. He chooses a man or woman for whatever reason he has. 
It is an amazing thing that God takes the weakest of the weak, like he did with Jacob, and he uses them to his glory to bring us the testimony of Jesus in our generation. So don't forget that Jacob was a prophet of God with some serious issues, but he saw the vision of God. He saw Jacob's ladder. And what does that mean? You go to the New Testament, Jacob's ladder is Jesus. Christ is the connecting link between heaven and earth. He saw Jesus. He saw the angels moving up and down and Jesus in prophetic vision. And anybody who sees Jesus in prophetic vision sent from God, I'm going to study that vision. I'm going to benefit from the knowledge that is the testimony of Jesus. Prophets can see what is in far off lands when God opens their eyes to show them what is there. When a prophet sees them, in fact, the word prophet sometimes There's another word in the Hebrew Bible called a seer, a roah, one who sees. They see, and they can't explain how they can see what's in a room. Elisha could hear the words in a room. He could tell what the king was saying to his associates. Now, don't expect me to give you some theology of how that works. It does work. And so when a prophet sees something, it behooves us all to listen to what they say as a result of their seeing. Prophets can see in far-off lands. Jacob's question is hilarious and painful to hear. I mean, in fact, it kind of rubs me a little different. He said, why do you look at one another? He said, why are you looking at one another? He didn't know why, but God knew. God knew that deep inside those brothers' hearts was a pain and a problem that only God, the good shepherd, can cure. He knew that they were living with something very hard, They were deeply wounded men who lived with the outcome of bad decisions when they were young and foolish men. Well, unfortunately, we need to leave it there for the first portion of Joseph's Brothers. Today's Reaching Your Heart. Don't forget it's available for you online at reachingyourheart.com. We would really love for you to be a part of our worship service. It's held every Saturday at 11 o'clock. That address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. Or if you're more comfortable, you're certainly welcome to watch online at reachinghearts.org slash video. reachinghearts.org slash video. The live broadcast will be streaming and available for you on that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Thanks for listening, and we do pray that God is reaching your heart. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.